Hey, welcome back. I don't know how things are in your state, but here in Michigan, we are allowed to gather again in groups of up to 100 as long as we are outside. So, since we're a smaller church, we are able to all meet together again, and we're going to be having a parking lot service. We're going to have our lawn chairs properly spaced out, of course, and it's going to be great. So, as we're gathering back together again, We've been apart for 10 weeks, and during that time, there's been a lot of online content. We have finished up our series on Romans, and we started a new series on the heart of the law. I hope that you've been enjoying it. I know that I really have. But I realize that there are some people of our church that have missed out on the online content so far. And so what I'm doing today for our church, and for you as well, is I'm going to kind of backtrack. I'm going to put the Heart of the Law series on hold, and I'm going to go back to Romans and summarize all 16 chapters in one go. So I hope that you like it. I hope that it helps to clarify the book of Romans and help you to better understand the message behind what Paul is saying in this letter as well. So let's get started. Let's take a look at the setting behind the book of Romans. It seems that when the Church of Rome was first founded, there was a significant portion of it that was Jewish. And since the Jewish people were more religious, they understood more about the promises of the scriptures and the Bible behind it, they were more the leaders of the church at first. And then a disaster came to Rome, namely a fire that the emperor blamed the Israelites, the Jews, for, and he kicked all of them out of the church. So the church was left with no one but Gentiles, who didn't really understand the Old Testament, didn't understand all of the different ways of doing stuff. And the church continued to grow and flourish and change. So that when the Jewish Christians were eventually allowed to come back in and they came to the church, they found it was, it was different. And they wanted things to go back to the way that they were. And the Gentile Christians wanted things to stay the same. And the church was in danger of being split as they were, even as they were coming back together. So what did Paul do in Romans? What Paul is focusing on is he is trying to recenter this church on the core truth of Christianity, the gospel of grace. He even says it for us in the beginning, in chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, right before he gets into the, the body of the message. I'm not ashamed of the good news of grace. Because it's God's power to save every believer, first the Jew and also the Greek. For in it, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. The gospel of grace is God's power to save. Save from what? Many of us think that saving is only referring to being saved from hell and going to heaven instead, to become a Christian. But Paul takes that word and he expands it to a, a much different idea than we may first think. And he does it very specifically. You can see it for yourself in the book of Romans. Hopefully it'll be clear to you. So let's start off by taking a look at the structure before we get into that. Romans has a fascinating structure. It has an introduction and a conclusion, just like most of his other letters, in which he greets the church, greets individuals in the church, and explains what he's doing in his ministry. But in between that, in the main body, Paul has five distinct 
messages that he is giving to Romans. He takes his whole message and he breaks it up into five smaller parts. You can tell there are five parts because after each of these parts, he introduces a series of questions. He like talks and then he pauses as if to say, I know you have some questions, so let's answer them before we move on to the next subject. And after those five lessons are done, from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11, he gives us four chapters of application to show how we can live this out in our lives. So we, in this review, are going to look at these five lessons, followed by the application. Let's start with that first lesson. You can find it in your Bible in chapter 1, starting in verse 18, and it runs all the way through the end of chapter 2. And I've titled this, The Need for God's Power to Save. This section introduces us with the problem that needs to be addressed. And you see it right off the bat, that there is the problem of God's condemnation. Now, what do you first think of when you hear condemnation? You think people sin, they become bad, and God condemns them to, to death and to hell, right? But that's not what Paul is saying. What Paul describes here is a different condemnation. He says the people being condemned are those who reject God, and the actual judgment that God places them on is slavery to the power of sin. They are under the control of sin. And we see this as people in chapter 1 are increasingly handed over, they're delivered to greater and greater levels of sin. And so we think, well, the answer is to stop sinning, right? But that's not the answer. Because Paul very clearly says, you can't escape from this through your effort. You can't judge yourself to say, I'm better or worse than other people. Your standard, if you want to earn your way to a right standing with God, is perfection. And as Paul reveals in four questions that he answers, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 18, he says, yes, this absolutely means no one will ever be able to measure up. And yeah, that kind of is meant to leave a sour taste in your mouth. As you ask the question, if you can't measure up through your works, what hope is there? How can you be right with God? This leads us into the amazing news of Lesson 2 which is found in chapter 3, verses 19 through 26. It's a very short section, but it is one of the more powerful, compact, little sets of verses in the Bible. This is what I call receiving God's power to save. The focus here is on the Father. As you read, it is the Father who is displaying a new kind of righteousness that is accessible through Jesus Christ. We get this righteousness of Christ, not by our works, but as a free gift for everyone who believes. And then in the rest of the section, in chapter 3, verse 27, all the way through chapter 4's end, Paul answers a series of six questions, and he reinforces again and again, yes, this means you are right with God entirely apart from earning. You could be a good person or a bad person. Your works do not determine your righteousness. Trusting in Jesus' work is what makes you right before God. But even then, you can tell that we are not through yet. Because that begs the question, does that mean that God doesn't care about sin? 
This leads us to lesson three found in chapter five, which I call the implications of God's power to save. And the focus shifts from the work of the Father to now the work of the Son. Because humanity, ever since the very beginning, has been under the control, the authority of sin and death. And we have not been able to get out from under it. But Jesus was the one that made the difference. When he came, he lived that perfect life. He took the judgment of sin and death on himself and he defeated it, breaking their power so that when we believe in him, we are connected to Jesus. And sin and death no longer have any right over us. They hold no authority over the person who believes in Jesus Christ. And what this means for our lives, as we see Paul answer four questions from the beginning of chapter 6 all the way through the end of chapter 7, Paul says what this means for you and for me is that we should consider ourselves, we should reckon ourselves, we should count it as true as if it's like written in an accounting book. Count ourselves as dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. But even so, we can say, okay, yeah, well, maybe technically I'm not under the authority of sin, but I feel like it, don't I? Paul even highlights this in the end of chapter 7, where he says, I may not be officially under the power of sin, but I feel like I am still under sin's control time and time again every day. How do I get out from under this? This is the problem of the condemnation all the way back from chapter 1, verse 18, where God says that he condemned people who rejected him to being under the authority of sin. He says, even if you are believers, you still experience that until you come to chapter 8. This is where lesson 4 comes in. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 30, which I call experiencing God's power to save. The focus here shifts from the Father and the Son. Now we are getting into our focus on the Spirit. He is the one who, as soon as you trust in Him, He comes into your life and He lives inside of you. He indwells you. And He connects you to God in a real, true, and vibrant way. Shouting out to God alongside of you, Yes, this is one of your children, God, this believer, is your child. And he tells us that we can have victory over sin. But we don't gain victory over sin by trying harder. You don't become a better Christian and live that victorious life by saying, I better be good enough that I am convinced that I am a child of God. He says, no, it works the other way around. You don't Find victory. You don't find freedom from that condemnation by trying harder. You find that freedom, that joy, that victory by trusting more. Trusting in the promise of the gospel of the grace of our God. And then Paul culminates those four sections in chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Again, it's a very compact section. It's short, but it's so powerful. And the emphasis of that is to say that we who have trusted in Christ, 
We who have been declared righteous by the Father. We who are identified with the Son. We who are indwelt by the Spirit. We belong to God. We are with Him and nothing but nothing will separate us from God. Not hell, not demons, not angels, not life or death or suffering or the past or the present or anything will separate us from God. And that is an incredibly powerful place where a lot of people will kind of stop because they don't really know what to do with the next section that's coming, but it fits perfectly. Because people who hear that nothing can make me be separated from God will still turn around and say, yeah, but I can jump out of God's hand, right? I can still walk away and separate myself. So Paul gives us a powerful illustration of his grace in the final lesson. In lesson 5, the lesson itself starts in chapter 9, verse 1, and goes through verse 13. And then there's a series of eight questions he answers from 9.14 through the end of chapter 11. And I call this section, Israel, the illustration of God's power to save. Over these three chapters, Paul shows that Israel has rejected God. They rejected Jesus when he stood around there for three years saying, Here I am, all the scriptures point to me, and I'm here now. And they say, No, we're going to kill you. They rejected him as much as any people could. They, and this after centuries and centuries of getting things wrong and rejecting God again and again and again, so that there are a lot of people in the church who say that was probably the final straw and God probably responded to their rejection of him by abandoning them finally. But Paul looks at that and says, absolutely not. God has not abandoned his people Israel. And he will one day fulfill every one of his promises to them. And he will save them. They belong to him. Now believer, Christian, if that's true, of what God is going to do to Israel, who rejected him so much. How much can you trust God to fulfill his promises to you? Yes, even when you've rejected him. You can trust all of his promises. Not because of your works, not because of your effort. You don't find confidence in yourself. You find your confidence in God's love, which is bigger than you. And so that's the five lessons, and that brings us to the final section of which answers, what does this matter for my life? How does this affect my everyday living? So we come to our application section in chapters 12 through 15, in which Paul tells us that we can take this knowledge of God's power to save, of the gospel, of grace, and we can live changed lives that display a generous, genuine, overflowing love. We show this love in chapter 12 as we serve one another in the church. We show this love in chapter 3 in our interactions with the government, obeying it even when it is an imperfect church. Remember how the Church of Rome treated the believers in the first days of the church. And in chapters 14 through 15, Paul actually spends two chapters telling us that grace and love should define how we interact with each other 
even when believers disagree over how to honor God best with our lives. This wasn't an easy thing that Paul was calling the believers to. But the better we understand the gospel, the better we can display the gospel in our lives. So in review, the church of Rome was facing struggles because they were thrown into chaos when first disaster struck and then when the government stepped in and made them not be able to gather. Sound familiar at all? And so now as they were finally coming back together, they were realizing that there were changes they weren't expecting or used to and it was threatening to tear their church apart. And Paul, in this letter, was pulling them back, refocusing them, recentering them on the gospel of grace. Grace. Grace is how we started our relationship with God. Grace is how we define who we are as Christians. Grace is how we find victory over the power of sin in our lives. Grace is how we know that we're safe in our relationship with God. Grace defines how we serve one another in the church. Grace impacts how we interact with and respond to the demands of the government. And grace sets the course for us to navigate conflict with other people, especially with other believers. Grace, grace, grace. It is all about grace from beginning to end. So as we regather, we can be caught up in the who's, the what's, the when's, and the where's of church. All too easily we can. We can fall all too easily into old habits of judging whether church is good or bad based on the quality of the music, whether it's the songs you like, based on the quality of the singers, based on the strength of the coffee, or a myriad of other kinds of of factors that we can bring in. But you know what these past ten weeks have taught me as I've been away from so many of you guys? It's taught me that the real value of church, it's not the music, it's not even the coffee. It's gathering together of believers who can worship God with one voice. That is, there's something special about that. We need to keep the gospel at the center of our lives and our worship. Church is going to look different when you return. Whether it's Rock Bible Chapel or any other church, there will be changes. Some of those changes will be gone in a couple of weeks. (sighs) Barely noticed them. Some of those churches are going to take months before they go away. And some of those changes, they're not going to go away. Church is going to be different after this. It's not going to be the same. But you know what? The core that holds the church together will not, does not, waver or change. The good news of Jesus Christ has always been and always will be the foundation. So let's keep it the front and the center of every interaction of our lives, displaying to one another and to the world the truth that the gospel of grace is the power of God to save every believer. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for Romans. We thank you that Paul's letter applies to our lives right now in surprising ways. And as we look in your word, help us to read through Romans again with new eyes. Eyes that better understand, trust, and display the good news of the grace in our own lives. We love you, Jesus. Amen.